This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, did you know you could be listening to The Gist with no ads and bonus extended interviews? Just go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to learn more and sign up in that order. Thank you. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. No one has ever done jury duty with as much joy and alacrity as Emily Kors. She was the foreperson of the Georgia panel that recommended some indictments, she's not saying how many, for some former Trump officials, it would seem, and cronies, possibly cronies. She's not saying which ones. She's saying a lot, and in a lot of places, hinting at teasing at who Georgia officials may charge. Here she was on MSNBC. I don't think that there are any giant plot twists coming. I don't think that there are any, like, giant... That's not the way I expected this to go at all. Wowza, eating popcorn jiff. That is why they call it a grand jury, people. Coors was 29 years old when she was impaneled as a grand juror in May, and now it's eight months later, and she is going to take the media tour she deserves. Coy hints, giddy intimations, even a dialogue by proxy with the former president, Donald Trump, who claimed exoneration when asked by CNN what Trump meant by that. Here was Emily Coors' answer. I'm not positive he read the right document, but... um, I will say that if what he was talking about was our statement where we indicated that there was no evidence of widespread fraud or widespread vote fraud in the Georgia 2020 election, that might have been what he meant. Other than that, I'm not positive what he meant by that. I'd be interested to know. I'm sure we will hear more from him after um, (laughs) after it it all comes out. Corey said former Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was, quote, a really geeky kind of funny. And she said Rudy Giuliani was also funny, though he took the fifth a lot, but seemed to think hard about it beforehand. What? No, I don't like him. Why? Did he say I like him? Does he like me? Corey's unusual decision to float the possibility of an indictment without any specifics, just to float it all out there on the media ether, is odd. I don't know if she's squatting on BigLiePerjury.com. I do know it's unusual, except for the fact that her generation, sorry to get old man civics teacher here, but her generation has been taught and told that this is how one operates when one gets the chance. Think of the followers she'll get on Insta. Think of the spawn con opportunities. You know, most influencers aren't chosen, but have greatness thrust upon them. I am willing to admit that some of what I just said was sexist, that maybe if I knew Emily Kors, I would say, Emily, don't do this, but I knew she's this really great person with a kind heart who worked really hard and just wants a little time in the sun to blow steam off. That could all be true. I don't want to come down on her in a condemnatory fashion. It doesn't seem that she greatly advanced justice, somewhat forcing Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis's hand by her media appearances. You know, her motives, whatever they are, might just be her version of self-care, having a me day, centering oneself, speaking her truth. 
I'm not worried about her truth. I'm worrying about his truth, truth social, and the thousand political operatives, professional and amateur, diving through her life right now to shame, ruin, or embarrass her, to unearth old tweets, to plant a milkshake on that particular duck, to somehow discredit the process based on Emily's time in the spotlight. No, I'm not worried about the bit of sunlight she's shining on the process. I'm worried about all the various princes and princesses of darkness who are out there to destroy it, her, and maybe a little bit of justice. On the show today, I spiel about the power of anti-wokeness as a presidential campaign platform. But first, Friday marks the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, started by Vladimir Putin. Let's get to know him a little more. In comic form, Andrew S. Weiss, former White House Russia expert, tells the story of Putin's rise to power in a new biography and graphic novel called Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Giving us insights into Putin past and present, Andrew Weiss up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin is a new book by author Andrew S. Weiss. Weiss is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's an old Russia hand, as they say. This book is an excellent authoritative tome. It is blurbed by Madeleine Albright on the front cover, which, you know, though she might be doing these things from the grave, and that's impressive. You might say, okay, an authoritative tome on Vladimir Putin. That gets a blurb from Albright. But the thing is, Accidental Czar is a graphic novel. It's a comic book. I don't think Madeleine Albright is blurbing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though I may be wrong. She contains multitudes. With illustrator Brian Box Brown, Weiss really fleshes out Vladimir Putin, the fleshy, shirtless autocrat who is the source of so much American angst. It was clarifying. It was excellent. Welcome to The Gist, Andrew. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So just give my audience a little bit of orientation of how you came to be an expert in Russia. So I'm a classic Russian nerd. I've been studying Russian and Soviet issues going back to my literally my first day of college in the mid-1980s. And then um, was fortunate during my government career to work at the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House in a variety of policy positions. And then for the better part of the last 15 years or so, I've been working in think tanks like the Rand Corporation and now the Carnegie Endowment. When was the first time a guy named Vladimir Putin in any way crossed your radar? So in the late 1990s, I was working at the National Security Council staff and out of nowhere, Vladimir Putin became the head of Russia's uh, security service, the FSB. And then in short order, he became Russia's national security advisor. So he was the counterpart 
to my boss, the president's national security advisor. And we dealt with him quite a lot. What was that? Was that Sandy Berger at the time? It was Sandy Berger. Yeah. yeah. So we dealt with him quite a bit on a variety of sensitive matters that were sort of uniquely focused on the two presidential staffs, the White House on the one hand and the Kremlin on the other. There's a panel in the book where we see Bill Clinton going, oh no, that guy, when told that he would be the new leader of Russia. Were you in the room for that? I mean, I know you weren't in the room for Genghis Khan and he's in the book too, but how did you know of uh, Clinton's reaction and why did he react that way? So my memory of that day is that president was doing an event in what was then called the old executive office building. And he was in an auditorium room that was in that at that time in the late 1990s, um, was in that building across the street from the White House. And I remember sitting in an like an anteroom. The staff were, uh, were sort of prepped to sit and monitor the call adjacent to him. I think he was in the this auditorium, not with me physically. So the book shows a little bit of creative license of him sitting at the Oval Office. But I think for all of us back then, the idea that Vladimir Putin, who was a political unknown, who had no background in elected office, and Russia was unraveling at the time, seemed like exactly the wrong guy for the job. It's only with time that he grew into the job and he seems to have become this larger than life figure, which is a key focus of the book. But he did not at the time bring any of that to the table. But exactly the wrong guy for almost the opposite of reasons why he wound up being the wrong guy, right? That was the perception then. Yeah. If you think about why Putin was selected by the Yeltsin family to take over for a debilitated, alcoholic, uh, bumbling president, Boris Yeltsin, it was precisely because two factors. One, they were worried about loyalty and they wanted a successor who would protect them from law enforcement and from any kind of reappropriation of the stuff they had stolen from their time in office. And Putin had a great track record of being loyal to a previous boss who was in similar jeopardy. The other thing that was clear when they did the focus groups, and there's a funny section of the book about this, where they asked average Russians, what would be the qualities of a new leader that you would most uh, readily embrace? People said, we want a guy sort of like this Russian character actor, Vyacheslav Tikhonov, who played basically like a George Clooney spy character in a bunch of pop culture movies of the 60s and 70s. We want somebody like that. And they sort of latched on to Putin, even though he doesn't look anything like George Clooney and he's not glamorous. And they said, OK, we need a guy who seems like he's from a part of the Russian security establishment like the KGB, who's tough and who's sober and who's going to show up for work. And Putin, it's your job to play that role. But Putin was also influenced by that character, right? He got most of his information from that very same TV show. Yeah. When Putin was the, you, you put your finger on something really important, Mike. So when Putin was a teenager growing up in 1960s Leningrad, he was a huge fan of these pop culture movies and books and TV series that glorified the Soviet KGB. And that was a huge part of what motivated him to get his life on track. He'd had a really bad childhood where he was a, a kind of kid hooligan. His parents gave up on him. And it was only his sort of force of will and desire to join the KGB that helped him get into a good school and then get his career off to a good start. But what's ironic is his career didn't go anywhere in the KGB. He actually had a completely lackluster career. And all of this image that was being sold to the Russian people when he was picked to be the new president was largely artificial. And he was being played and he was playing people as, you know, the super spy or this Arnold Schwarzenegger style action figure. All that was a put on.
Right. So it was as if in the 80s, they did a poll, uh, who should be the next leader of America and Tom Selleck, some magnum PI type one, or maybe, you know, maybe you can make the Reagan joke, but Reagan actually didn't, he wasn't exactly John Wayne in most of his movies, but yeah, they wanted uh, a hero who represented to them a time of Russian glory and toughness. And Putin, I think, as you make the point in a number of ways, whatever his actual personality, he has an aspect of this personality where he can be quiet. He is the empty vessel. And people often read him wrong because he lets them do that. And so that I would put as a mark uh, of one of his one of his strengths, as he would see it. You know, that's certainly a skill that he has. And yeah, Putin should not be underestimated. He's a very hard worker, does his job to the utmost. At the same time, what you know we're all reacting to now, and this is part of why I wrote the book in the first place, was this image of him after Russian interference in the 2016 uh, presidential election was revealed, is of this kind of super spy and this person who's you know omnipotent and who you know really has great great strategic depth. And we see this on display every day in the war in Ukraine. He's made a just an unbelievable epic blunder in Ukraine. And it shows you, and this is a you know key theme of the book as well, this impulsive and emotional side of him where he got an idea, he got completely fixated on it and wouldn't let it go and then pursued it in his you know, Putin-ish way and it blew up in his face. And now we're all having to live in that world. Right. I went back and listened to an interview you did on the eve of the war of the invasion of Ukraine, an interview you did with CNN. And at that time, a large number of learned people were saying, oh, Putin's too smart to do this. And another portion were saying something like, uh, the, guy, the guy's a maniac. I, I don't even know how real the Ukrainians were taking it. But you made the excellent point that, yeah, he is strategic and yeah, he is smart. But he is also a hooligan. He also is given to fits of rage. And both of these things are true in his personality. And so you nailed that. Thanks. I really appreciate you digging that up. I mean, the other part of it is, is he also bears the distinction of having lost Ukraine twice before. And if you go back and there was a popular revolution in 2004 after a crooked election where the people of Ukraine stood up and said, you can't treat us this way. And then there was a second popular revolution in 2014 Putin's behavior during both those key moments in Ukraine's history, again, blew up in his face. And he saw the invasion in February of 2022 as a chance to basically clear the slate and get Ukraine back and remove this huge black mark. And it's just an epic miscalculation. So I want to go back to your expertise about some of the other actors, some of the other figures who uh, elevated Putin, work with Putin. One was Yeltsin, who you referenced the president before Putin Sure, he was an alcoholic, and I've heard stories of him being drunk in the presence of Bill Clinton, but how huge a factor was that, his alcoholism? Was he drunk so much that it got in the way of what he and U.S. uh, foreign policy were trying to accomplish? Yes and no. Um, The thing that was different about Yeltsin than any of the leaders who came before him is he did have some core beliefs, and he wanted Russia to be a post-communist country. He wanted elections. He wanted free market. I don't think he had deep, deep sophistication about any of those things. He wanted freedom of religion. He was reliable as a foreign leader to enforce that vision. So I can remember, for example, working on religious freedom issues. And whenever there was something bad happening to a religious minority, we would go to Yeltsin and we would say, this is not 
aligned with these stated principles that you say are at the core of your bo- your of your essence and your political uh, legacy. And he would un uh, you know unscramble the egg. It was really remarkable. The difference is is that at key moments he had this serious drinking problem. And I remember there's a, another funny moment in the book when we were really worried about Russia messing up. Uh, the war that the U.S. was conducting in the Balkans. And, I, you know, at some point, we tried to get Yeltsin on the phone. We're really worried about Russia doing something to help the Serbs. And instead of addressing what President Clinton wanted to talk about, Yeltsin said, you know, Bill, why don't you and I, like, meet in secret on a submarine or in a, you know, like on a, a desert island? And no, we won't tell anyone. We'll just show up there. And it was because he was wasted. And it made us all very nervous that, you know, the head of state of the world's second biggest nuclear power just can't execute his duties successfully. And it was that was evident to everybody. That wasn't just people in the White House. And don't worry, in the graphic novel, as he suggests these things, we see the submarine he's imagining. We see the boat. Um, I also want to ask you about the oligarchs who you personally met with one by one as Putin was rising to power. They would tell you things that surprised and shocked you, but about Putin or about where their society was headed? So we thought, and it's important to unpack this idea of oligarchs, at the height of the Yeltsin era, there is no doubt that well-connected people who were tied to the Yeltsin family or had figured out how to take advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union came into massive fortunes, and they were playing an outsized role in the economy and in how Russia was governed. When Putin came into office, he really early on laid down a new reality to those people and said, basically, get yourselves out of politics and just you can keep what you've taken during this giant carve up of the Soviet collapse, but you're not involved in politics anymore. And he had a couple of very famous showdowns with people, for example, who own TV stations. That changed Russia early on in the Putin era, which started in the year 2000. But this image that we all have from pop culture of these glamorous oligarchs calling the shots and being the power behind the throne, that stayed with us despite the fact that Putin had written a new social contract. My dealings with oligarchs was, you know, as part of a project I was running at the Rand Corporation. And what I saw was that for the most part, they were cunning, they were agile, but they were extremely dependent on the state and they needed the state's approval or involvement to keep things going for themselves. And over time, you saw a group of people muscle in on the territory that these people from the 1990s had carved out. And the people who became increasingly important were people who had just had by fluke or luck some overlap with Putin at an earlier stage of their careers, like they'd served in Dresden together in the KGB office there, or they'd known Putin when he was working in the Leningrad mayor's office in the 1990s. And you saw a whole new cast of characters come in who really didn't care about being global. They didn't really care about respectability on the global stage. They just cared about cared about getting paid. And if you bring that now to the, the, the moment we're in today, everyone loves to say, oh, if only we just put pressure on these guys, they'll w- march into Vladimir Putin's office and say, stop this horrible war. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're his employees. They all benefit from basically being issued licenses by him to control assets or to make money and to enjoy the good life. It's not as if he works for them or they're his paymasters. It's absolutely flipped around. And this connects back to a core theme of the book. This is how Russia has been ruled for the better part of the last 600 years, where when the, the Romanov dynasty was set up, 
the czar was the owner of the whole country. And he then issued licenses to the nobility to operate some part of the economy or have some section of the, the territory to control. And the final thing I'll say here is it's just different than the way private property operated in other parts of Europe. So, for example, private property developed in the United Kingdom 500 years before it was introduced in Russia. It's just a very different society. And the relationship between ruler and ruled has always been slightly different than it is in the mainstream parts of Western Europe that we're familiar with. I want to talk about inflection points where if we are looking at what we have now and say, ooh, how could this have been avoided? The answer is not a year ago or two years ago. It's maybe 20 years ago. And you were there. You were there as US, as the US was trying to craft its policy towards Russia, uh, the Russia that was where communism was just ending and the Russia that transitioned from Yeltsin to Putin. And you have some self-critiques. And you say at some point, Westerners claim that the problems they were experiencing, say, in the Yeltsin era, were merely the growing pains of long-term transition to a more democratic and prosperous future. Our job was to create breathing room for the transition and politely mollify our Russian friends' concerns and just as firmly to tell them, eat their spinach. Okay, what should you have done knowing what you know now? We set our expectations way too high at the beginning. People, for reasons having to do with the euphoria of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the dismantlement of the Soviet Union, were really hopeful. And we really devoted so much bandwidth from the president on down to helping manage the Soviet collapse and trying to build a new relationship with Russia. But I think we, A, thought Russia would start to look more and more like a Western democracy. And we, we you know, were badly disappointed in that. And two, we really, I don't think, fully internalized how this collapse of the external empire was going to make Russia feel both like something that belonged to it had been taken, fairly or unfairly, as well as ultimately had made Russia less secure. And that for the last, you know, going back again to my analogy about the beginning of the Romanovs, there's a wonderful historian at Princeton named Stephen Kotkin. On average, Kotkin estimates that the Russian empire increased by 50 square miles per day for hundreds of years because it doesn't have natural boundaries. It doesn't have Canada and Mexico. It doesn't have the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. So the only way to sort of safeguard itself was to expand. And it's always had expansionism. Yeah. You put yourself behind a Poland, behind a Lithuania, behind a Kazakhstan, and then the real Russian empire, Moscow, and the surrounding areas is perhaps protected. Exactly. And I don't think we fully realized how much the strategic thinking of generations of Russians, not just the Putin crowd, had that deep in their minds as that's the way to protect the country. The other thing that we didn't really understand is how much having a centralized government was really important to people like Putin. And there's a word I use in the book that I think gets at him in a way that, that no other word does, which is gasudarstvenik, which basically means a believer in a strong state. And for someone for whom the interests of the state will always trump the, the interests of the individual, the rule of law, the way the international system operates. And Putin, from day one, has dedicated himself to trying to build up this strong state. The irony is, is because it's Russia, and we see this every day in Ukraine, that strong state ain't so strong, right? It's a state that can't fight a war, that can't fight corruption, that can't deal with day-to-day -day governance so that average people have health care and education and clean drinking water. And so for all of Putin's fixation on the interests of the state, we see the limitations on display pretty much every day. 
And there are these horrible paradoxes. But the Russian people believe in that too. So maybe that makes it easier for a leader to try to convince the people to what they, of what they want to believe in the first place. Yes and no. I don't think the average Russian gets much of a vote on how the country's governed, right? There are no elections. Putin's not doing focus groups or polling because he's worried, oh man, I might lose my parliamentary majority or something. Like none of that matters. The Russian people, after 20 years of this system that they lived in under Putin, know that like political activity is dangerous. So the natural thing to do is avoid political activity. They know that they're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're safest by not doing things to challenge the authority of the state and to just try to be left alone. And it's precisely that kind of passivity and averting their glance that is on display in the war in Ukraine, right? Because people don't want to know about the horrible stuff that Russian soldiers are doing. They could go on the internet, they could watch YouTube videos, like all that information is knowable and gettable. But the the self-protective mechanism that is dominant in that society right now is keep your head down. And intimidation works. And tomorrow, Andrew Weiss will be back to talk more about Putin and his strategy and tactics in presenting him in comic form. Also, where he thinks, as an expert, a Russia expert, where he thinks things may go. That'll be tomorrow. More of Andrew Weiss, author of Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. And now the spiel. Vivek Ramaswamy, businessman and author, has an announcement. And leading up to that announcement, as you will hear, big reasons. Strap in. They tell you that your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation govern who you are, what you can achieve, and what you're allowed to think. This is psychological slavery, and that has created a new culture of fear in our country that has completely replaced our culture of free speech in America. And that is why today I am announcing my run for chairman of Bucks County School Board, head of the Heritage Foundation. I don't know. Let's think bigger. A seat in city government, like, say, Portland. No, Minneapolis. There we go. Minneapolis Town Council. President of the United States. Oh, president. He's going to Andrew Yang his way into this one, is he? Well, even though the ambition is outsized, the phrasing there that you heard is at least conventional. Here is how Vivek phrased it on his appearance on Tucker Carlson last night. And that's why I'm proud to say tonight that I am running for United States president. The why was once again divisiveness over diversity. Well, not only is Vivek Ramaswamy not qualified to be president of the United States or United States president, the United States president can't end wokeness. In fact, quite the opposite. I don't know if you noticed, but the least woke guy ever, initials DJT, was president at the time of the biggest expansion of wokeness. I wouldn't say he was just powerless to stop it. I would say his personality, stances, revanchist ways breathed more of it into being than we could ever have imagined. So I'm very familiar with Ramaswamy from his writings in the Wall Street Journal. I've heard him on podcasts. I read a big profile of him in The New Yorker. That wasn't the fairest piece of journalism, but it was pretty good. It was clearly designed as one of those scene setters before a candidate bursts onto the scene. A reporter spends a lot of time and then becomes the go-to source of understanding and explaining this guy to the rest of the media. You know, this in advance of, let's say, his Senate race is the Republican nominee opposing Sherrod Brown. But president? Riding anti-wokeness to the White House? 
I have no doubt that Ramaswamy's sentiment is a mix of sincerity and opportunism. Anti-woke is his brand, the name of his book, or Woke Inc. was, and he understands branding. He's an ex-CEO, he's an author, that authorship has given him speaking opportunities, has invited him on Fox News a lot. But let's just think about how important the issue of wokeness or being anti-wokeness is. Lots of Republicans talk about it. They rally the base about it. There's definitely a segment of the audience that wants to hear about it. But there is no evidence that it's a driving issue in selecting a president or even really any officials. Virginia's Glenn Youngkin will be cited as a champion of anti-wokeness, but not really. He just took advantage of missteps by Terry McAuliffe in how he talked to parents and how he dismissed their concerns. Driving issue? I mean, look at it this way. Even crime and inflation, which are certainly legitimate concerns, and concerns that we have empirically derived stats about, right? They weren't primary on the list of issues that voters use to determine their midterm votes. Wokeness? In a decade, wokeness went from slang to, what, electoral determinant? Will the 2030 race be fought on the grounds of which candidate is most mid? You know where I stand on immigration, on taxes, and most importantly, on fleek, 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 or Tippy Canoe and Tyler Chugi. That is the oppo ad when Tyler, the creator, runs for president or vice president uh, in that framing. So you get my point. Wokeness is annoying to a lot of people. It's fighting words just to use the word will get others extremely mad at you. But again, there is no evidence that it's something so annoying as to be salient to voters. And if annoying things or the desire not to be annoyed is why voters went to the polls, then running on a vow to ban that Cars for Kids jingle would be a gigantic winner. Now, I do think that most voters actually agree more than disagree with Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and every other candidate who has announced or thought of announcing the Republican nomination. Putting aside the definition of the somewhat amorphic term woke, if we could agree what to call the trend of progressive activism gaining ground and prominence, the average voter probably sets their preference dial more towards the negative of that trend than the positive. I mean, if it was mostly welcomed in most places, it wouldn't have to be activism, would it? I mean, keep in mind that when we're talking about the average or modal voter, uh, when you think of swing voters or the backbone of this or that party, just actually think of the median American voter. The median American voter is a white woman in her early 50s with less than a college education. Who's she voting for? What are her concerns? Does she think Sam Smith really is a Satanist based on his Grammy performance? She does not. Is she maybe worried about what her school is teaching her kids? Yeah, maybe yes. Even though parents are not up in arms about battles over CRT, that is true. Most think teaching it in schools is somewhat of a problem. I get this from polling that was conducted by the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. And what's funny is that the AFT very, very much wanted to show that parents are interested more on focusing on core competencies than on culture war fodder. And that is true. They did get that result. But they also asked some interesting questions like, now... This is to people who took their poll. 
Now you will see things that some people may feel are problems in public schools today. For each one, please indicate whether you feel this is a serious problem for the public school in your area. One question was, white students being shamed over issues of race and racism. And 55% of parents, who were a demographically diverse group, counted it as at least a somewhat serious problem. They also asked about schools teaching critical race theory, or CRT. 54% of parents said it was at least a somewhat serious problem. 30% said it was not a problem and 16% weren't sure. But an issue preference does not turn a campaign into a rocket ship to Washington. And if it did, should James Webb be associated with that rocket? And also I need to point out, since this is why we're talking about it, even if this were the most important issue to voters, is Vivek Ramaswamy the likely champion that those voters are looking for? I will go further than saying, as a key issue, this one's a loser. So first, let me posit that some version of stifling free expression and enforcing groupthink is in fact quite bad. It is something to worry about. Maybe not as bad as the war in Ukraine, maybe more than resort fees. Okay, I talk about this kind of a lot, try to not talk about it too much on the show. Maybe I don't mention often enough, though, that these trends, these pernicious trends, are not occurring via government intervention. Almost never. It's almost always a matter of social costs being imposed or changes in the culture, real or imagined, and not anything the government does. The government sometimes catches up to where the culture moves on an issue like this. Ramaswamy even announced his campaign in Rochester, New Hampshire, tweeting, this isn't a political campaign, but a cultural movement. Actually, I would think in this case, it's a little bit of neither. But just as the people most upset about wokeness think the government should stay out of their lives when it comes to guns, environmental regulations, and permits, I think the government should stay out of our lives when it comes to wokeness by not imposing it and not banning it. First of all, there's no definition to it, so it really just becomes a proxy for things I don't like. But if a local school board wants a CRT-heavy curriculum or an AP class that includes a section on intersectionality, that's good if they have parental buy-in. If a local school board, not a governor from above, but actual parents in the district and educator want these topics to be taught a different way, that's also fine. You can't ban books, that'd be my rule, but you also can't fire a football coach who questions curriculum elements. Separation of woke and state doesn't mean, that's my decree, separation of woke and state. It doesn't mean that you can't have a progressive agenda, just like it certainly means you can't ban by fiat elements of progressivity in the agenda, but it does mean that the imposition of these elements and retaliation against opponents who voice concerns and critiques is not the proper role of government. So this is why my platform is the separation of woke and state. And that is why I'm running for United States president. No, just podcaster. Now available ad-free. Subscribe at mikepesca.com. This isn't just an offer of an ad-free podcast. This is a movement. And that's it for today's show. Moving us along with Corey Ward, just producer. And Joel Patterson, just senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. For inquiries about how to listen to this whole shebang without advertising, once again, I will say subscribe.mikepesca.com. Oomperu, G-peru, du-peru, and thanks for listening.